therefore not divide the world, that China's on one side, but Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan, and Korea are on the other side, that would magnify the costs of decarbonization ferociously. Season two of What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister of Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. Over the next few months, I'm going to be speaking to some of the world's leading thinkers about how we tackle the climate crisis and renew our economies in a post-pandemic world. This is going to include economists, scientists, authors, campaigners and political experts. There will be names who will be very familiar to many of you, like today's guest, but also some lesser-known experts whose work is helping to shift global action on climate change. I hope that these conversations will go some way towards developing a shared understanding of how we work together to build a low-carbon, equitable future, both here in Aotearoa and around the world. Today, I'm delighted to kick off Series 2 with Professor Jeffrey Sachs. Professor Sachs is the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University in New York, and over the course of his career has served as special advisor to three United Nations Secretaries General. He's also authored some of the world's most influential books on economics, development, and climate change, and counts President Biden and John Kerry as good friends. I caught up with Professor Sachs in early March and spoke with him about a range of issues, including the importance of building geopolitical relationships oriented around climate action and the role of trade. But having spent several decades studying and trying to fix some of the world's most challenging problems, I opened our conversation by asking Professor Sachs how he would characterize the current moment. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Now, here's my conversation with Professor Jeffrey Sachs. Of course, this has been the most unsettled period of modern history because of the pandemic. Uh, and the world has really had. Uh, a remarkably uh, divided experience. Uh, I look uh, longingly at what uh, New Zealand has accomplished of stopping the pandemic cold. Uh, days, weeks of no cases, uh, almost no deaths, uh, really all kudos uh, to you and to the government and to the people of New Zealand. We have gone through a nightmare in the United States, 525,000 deaths. Uh, we had a president who was, uh, <laughs> I can't even use the right terms in polite company, but he was the worst president that we ever had in American history. Utterly irresponsible, lying, untrustworthy, <clears throat> and incapable of uh, listening to science. <clears throat> the end result is hundreds of thousands of deaths. It's uh, completely shocking. Uh, and New Zealand proves and your neighborhood proves in the Asia-Pacific region that this pandemic could have been controlled globally already essentially a year ago. 
uh, because with decisive action, clear governance, clear messages from government to the public, and then a public that listens and, and respects the messages and respects each other, you could stop the transmission of this virus. But instead, we've had a year of chaos. Very unusually, it was uh, most rich countries that did the worst. So the North Atlantic region, both Western Europe and our side of the Atlantic, uh, the United States, but even Canada uh, and also Mexico, just terrible performance in this. This is rather unusual. Uh, and it's rather sobering, actually. It shows us that uh, being rich uh, doesn't make you very wise, necessarily. It certainly doesn't make the public very responsible. And uh, we're basically trying to fight back in the United States now with some uh, normalcy. We have a real gentleman as a president. Uh, Joe Biden is a good person. Uh, I've known him for 30 years. He's a decent man, uh, a good man, wants to do the right thing. Uh, this is something new for us <laughs> in, in contrast with the, what we had. But the fact of the matter is the world is still in a remarkably unsettled state of affairs. We don't have global cooperation working. We don't have global trust. We don't have clarity of purpose. And I've devoted my career to multilateralism because I believe in peace as a, a, a vital part of our well-being uh, and as a vital key to solving problems. And yet I can't say that we have a healthy multilateralism right now, vastly better than a few weeks ago because Trump was an outright opponent of uh, cooperation with other countries. Biden wants to cooperate, but still the level of distrust, uncertainty, the weakness of international institutions, the failure over the years chronically to take seriously the very goals that we set ourselves, whether the sustainable development goals or the Paris Climate Agreement, and then the failure to address the COVID-19 pandemic globally as effectively as New Zealand and your neighbors have done, leaves us in a very, very unsettled state of affairs. Do you think that the uh, challenges that different countries have had around the virus and, and some of the terms that we've come to learn, like, uh, you know, virus nationalism um, and uh, countries that are maybe misbehaving when it comes to the free distribution and access to treatment. And, and we, saw, we saw some of that very early on with things like countries trying to get hold of respirators, masks, PPE equipment and so on. And now you're seeing it play out with uh, the vaccines and access to vaccines and so on. Um, and this kind of vastly unequal distribution. Is that having an effect on uh, multilateralism in areas that have got nothing to do with the virus? What's happening is uh, rather st stunning, uh, actually. Uh, the United States, which, which isn't the worst place in the world on average, uh, it certainly is not uh, among the best, I have to say, from a political, cultural point of view. But 
we don't even have a discourse in this country about helping other countries anymore. It's just amazing uh, to me. Uh, and it, it is a, a change that I've seen over my professional life, because I remember when we talked about other countries, <laughs> when we talked about development aid and so on. But to give you a sense of that, the United States has appropriated now $5 trillion over 12 months to fight the pandemic. We're a rich country, but still $5 trillion is, is real change uh, after all. It's, uh, it's, it's not uh, nothing. Uh, we had a $2.1 trillion package in March 2020. We had a $900 billion package in December. Uh, and now a $1.9 trillion package uh, that is Biden's uh, first legislative initiative. During that entire time of $5 trillion, there wasn't a word about helping any other country. Uh, it was not said, well, given all this money, we should make sure that hungry people are being attended to or that uh, the poorest people are also getting help. Not even a glimmer. With Trump, you wouldn't expect it, but I would say the habit disappeared in the United States because even normal, decent politicians don't even remember to check that box anymore, that one should say something about the rest of the world. And what's happening, I think we're going to see political unrest in a number of countries, in developing countries where vaccines don't arrive, and then political leaders are going to be held to account for the absence of vaccines, even though they have no way to get them, because they have been commandeered in the first uh, uh, hundreds of millions of doses by the rich, powerful countries. I am watching this right now, uh, where governments are facing uh, absolute uh, unrest at home because of supposed mismanagement of the vaccines when, in fact, those governments didn't stand a chance to get the vaccines early on. So we're creating mass tensions as well as mass inequities. And what I'm trying to do myself in my work as chairman of the Lancet COVID-19 Commission and working with the IMF with the U.S. government, with the other G20 governments right now, is to say we need clarity of financing and plans so that we can be sure when immunizations are going to be arriving in different parts of the world and that we're not living in a tiered global society where the haves get everything and the have-nots don't even have a clue as to when help might arrive, because that's really the situation right now. I, I was in Paris in 2015 uh, when the agreement was signed. I was an observer. I was I was in the opposition then, um, uh, and and it, because I wasn't engaged directly in in at all, I I could act as an observer. And one of the things that was so apparent uh, was the level of cooperation between the United States and China that got the Paris Agreement over the line. Now, there are obviously a lot of actors there. You know, the Europeans played a huge part. French diplomacy was at its absolute best. Uh, you know, there were other conditions at play as well. But, 
you know, if it hadn't been for the cooperation between the US administration and the Chinese administration, it, it wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have a Paris Agreement. Uh, and that's exactly uh, and, that's exactly right. And I and I would say from the moment that the UN Framework Convention uh, on Climate Change was signed in 1992, the issue of U.S.-China rivalry was the single most important factor undermining uh, this agreement because it was already back in. Uh, 1997, when the U.S. Senate said, we're not going to join the Kyoto Protocol because China isn't bound by that. And China said, well, we're a developing country. We are not an Annex One country, so-called. We're not going to take those steps. And the U.S. said, we're not going to do anything unless China does it. China said, we are not bound by that treaty because the way it's defined is the rich country should go first. 2009 in Copenhagen collapsed because of this exact issue. 2015, I give uh, President Obama uh, great credit for good diplomacy, very careful diplomacy. Uh, and with the President Xi Jinping, they did it. This year, uh, in fact, uh, at the uh, UN General Assembly, uh, September 2020, President Xi announced that China is now committed to uh, reach climate neutrality by 2060. Big advance. That's something that we should be jumping at and saying, great, but make it 2050, please. Uh, other than that uh, point, uh, there's really something to work on together. And this is exactly what we need in order to make this work. So given that level of tension that you're observing at the moment, uh, what do you think the pathway through is? I mean, you've, you're, uh, you know, in particular, your most recent book talks a lot about the geopolitics and all the other kind of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. What do you think needs to happen to diffuse that tension and help to kind of rebuild the, uh, that bilateral relationship, but also then around that, the multilateral system that enabled Paris to get over the line in the first place? Because, you know, it was great to get the treaty, but uh, it immediately needs to devolve into a lot of very hard work in every single country in the world. And and so it is going to take that cooperation to make that happen. I, I think the most important point is we need to understand ourselves better, actually, uh, which is uh, our own tendency to point out all the ills of the other fellow uh, and not understand our own uh, problems and our own mistakes. Uh, I often uh, speak of uh, what I call Jesus's foreign policy uh, when he said, why do you point to the moat in the other eye uh, and not to the beam in your own eye? So when American officials are constantly uh, attacking China on uh, every which way, I say, yes, but what about us? Uh, we do the same abuses. Uh, we have uh, terrible racism at home. We cause wars abroad. Let's figure out how to make ourselves better and on that basis, not hypocritically, call for everybody uh, to do better. And I think it really is a matter of consciousness raising. There's an idea uh, in uh, political science uh, called the security dilemma. The security dilemma is when both sides distrust each other. So any defensive action that one side takes is viewed as an offensive action by the other side. And you just get an escalation of ill will and bad feelings. 
I know the American mentality, uh, which is because of America's role in the world, uh, especially during uh, the uh, last 80 years, uh, Americans say, if we don't run the show, uh, the world's not going to work right. It's a pretty aggressive, pretty arrogant point of view, but it lends itself to this security dilemma idea. Everything China does is viewed as aggressive uh, without understanding that our attitudes towards China are provoking so many of those actions in China as well. We say, why is China building uh, the military up? But at the same time, our military spending is so large and we are publicly saying that we want to put together a coalition of countries essentially to surround China. Uh, and uh, this is not the right way to approach another great power. Uh, the right way to approach a great power is to say, we need to cooperate, we need to clarify, we need to have serious relations, uh, we need to get off uh, the tweets and uh, into the hard work of uh, careful discussions rule setting, standard setting. We won't agree on everything. We will compete on things, but we will do it befitting uh, the importance of this bilateral relationship and the fact, actually, that the whole world depends on uh, our two countries getting along. So this is uh, feasible because, as in so many conflicts, there is no fundamental reason for the U.S. and China to be in conflict, uh, except if you have the mentality that the other side's gain is your loss. If you have a zero-sum view of the world, then you can't cooperate. Uh, but if you have a cooperative view of the world, that the world's big enough for the both of us, and that we can both benefit, and indeed, we have to cooperate to keep the world safe for all of us, then I don't see any intrinsic reason why this is impossible. I actually do believe that the climate uh, cooperation could be the most effective entry point because it is something that both sides know is necessary for their own good. China is highly vulnerable to climate change. It's not just a generosity. Uh, China chokes on its own air pollution. Uh, and so it has a strong reason to move to renewable energy, even for its own health, not even uh, to speak of the, of, of the climate effects. A glimmer, maybe it's more than a glimmer of good news, is that China and the United States have agreed to co-chair a G20 committee on climate finance. And one of our true statesmen in American politics, John Kerry, who is the lead of uh, American climate policy, but was a great secretary of state, uh, a tremendous senator, someone who has been interested in the climate, I mean, not just interested, committed to the climate agenda for decades. Uh, it's a good sign that he's there because he represents the kind of maturity of statesmanship that can really help maybe some of the hotheads cool down and understand that this is the right approach to cooperate. I, I thought it was a very strong signal uh, that President Biden appointed John Kerry into that role as the Special Envoy on Climate Change because, of course, you know, not only is John Kerry an incredibly senior statesperson, a former Secretary of State, but he was also the Secretary of State who negotiated the entry into the Paris Agreement. 
so he you know he was he was one of those core figures in Paris. So to appoint him into that role, I think harks back to that era of cooperation and and saying actually we need to work together. And 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 you know I'm I'm no great reader of Chinese politics, but if I was sitting in their shoes, I would have read that in that light. I think that's uh, absolutely correct, and I I know uh, John Kerry for more than 30 years. And he's been interested in this topic absolutely the entire time, and not just interested in it, a leader uh, in this area. So this is also not uh, uh, an appointment of convenience. Uh, This is a kind of capstone of a great career, but of uh, a topic that has been absolutely central to his concern. So it is indeed a tremendous sign, and it could be the lever that opens up a broader scope of cooperation. And I think we really need that because uh, there's a lot that we need to cooperate on and there are a lot of risks if we don't cooperate. Can I ask you about small countries? Speaking as someone from New Zealand, uh, which emits a total of one third of 1% of the total uh, of global emissions. And that is something I hear a lot in our domestic discourses. Why are we bothering when we're such a small fish? You know, why don't we wait and see what China and the United States and the European Union and India and Brazil and, you know, all of those guys do? Uh, you know, and it's clear that the kind of really big countries need to kind of get together as they have in the past to make progress here. What do you see the role of smaller countries, uh, whether they're wealthier countries like New Zealand uh, or, uh, you know, developing uh, countries that don't have the kind of resource base that we we do, but either way, aren't great players in the global stage? I'm always remembered of a wonderful speech that President uh, John F. Kennedy gave uh, when he went to Ireland in 1963, uh, and he went to visit his uh, ancestral home and then spoke to the Irish parliament. And he talked about the role of what he called the the five-foot countries, uh, speaking to Ireland and saying what a huge role in history small countries have repeatedly played. And he gave many vivid examples of that. And I know that this is true. Small countries can play a huge role, and not only to flatter you, but to say it truly, your prime minister, uh, I know she's of a different party, but uh, you're in the uh, alliance together. Uh, She's probably the most admired politician in the world right now, uh, I would say. So uh, though New Zealand is a a small country, the eyes are on New Zealand uh, right now. to a remarkable extent, <laughs> we're all envious. We watched COVID. We watched uh, her huge re-election uh, victory. Uh, we watched the support of the people. Uh, I've had the chance to interview her at Columbia University to a completely wrapped audience of a thousand people in the auditorium, utterly charmed and impressed by her uh, vision and leadership. So I would say right now you're playing a big role, uh, period. Uh, New Zealand's on the world stage because of your success. Uh, And uh, we're watching, and the fact that New Zealand has a clear commitment to uh, climate neutrality by 2050, it has a 
very vivid role to play in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, you're making a great success of the difficulties uh, in the past uh, year with the pandemic and showing how good governance can work. I would just urge you to keep at it, uh, keep uh, leading by example. It's, it is the fact that good governance, though it, it's a, a benefit for the whole world, it is really New Zealand's reward. Uh, I also know that because uh, I'm a co-editor of the World Happiness Report. New Zealand is certifiably one of the happiest places in the world. Uh, and for good reason, because people really like good governance. Uh, they like to hear straight talk and responsible talk. They like to feel that the government is out for the common good, uh, that it is abiding by science, that the messages are clear. By the way, we've seen throughout the COVID pandemic that when governments bow to what is perceived to be the public demand to open up early or to do other things, it doesn't win public approval. It just raises the anxiety level. And this has been true in many countries, certainly in the United States, also the United Kingdom, uh, which both of our countries know well, uh, and how poorly uh, the politics has, has worked there and how little trust uh, has uh, come as a result of that and how much angst has come. And we see that in the uh, in the opinion surveys, as well as in the capacity to get something done. I would say, by the way, in general on climate change, countries that say, well, who knows what's going to happen, but for the meantime, we're going to continue in the fossil fuel age, are only going to cheat themselves because they will invest and then strand assets. Uh, you know, the idea that you would build new natural gas pipelines or that you would build new coal plants even in some countries. It's unimaginable to me because there's no doubt that those will be stranded assets. And we've had the experience uh, in the United States of the students during the last 10 years calling for divestment from the fossil fuel industry, especially in the endowments of the universities. And we had all these heavyweight financiers say, no, no, you don't understand. We're responsible for the endowment and it's nice, your sentiment uh, and uh, how noble, but we have to handle serious money. And the fact of the matter is anyone that held oil, gas, or coal shares absolutely lost their shirt in the last three years. It was the worst investment in a rising stock market, basically because the stock market is... Uh, it's late, but it finally comes to reality. And it came to the reality around 2018. Hey, we really do have climate change. It's serious. And these investments don't make sense. And so this is, uh, I think, the job of government also not to waste the taxpayers' money by making easy promises that are then going to end up in stranded assets. And uh, Trump tried to keep promoting fossil fuels in the United States. Thank goodness he didn't get very far because the bankers figured it out before the president did. This is an area that I have uh, some interest in because we have adopted the recommendations of the task force on climate-related financial disclosures, which uh, you know one of your uh, fellow countrymen 
um, was involved in. Uh, Michael Bloomberg co-chaired that task force along uh, with uh, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England at the time. Uh, and it, it essentially says, look, uh, companies have a duty to disclose material risks to their shareholders via their directors. Um, and we believe that there are globally trillions of dollars of unquantified, unreported risks sitting on corporate balance sheets, which essentially is this stranded asset risk that you're, that you're talking about. When we ad adopted that and made the announcement that we were going to uh, consider this, there was actually huge support from the corporate sector, uh, which sort of took me by surprise because the private sector is not normally keen for you know more reporting obligations or more regulation or anything like that. Uh, and and yet there was this something like 76% support from the business sector itself uh, to move towards this because my sense is that in the last, maybe just only in the last two to three years, uh, those businesses are becoming more aware of the risk that they themselves are exposed to, but they kind of don't want to go first whilst one of their competitors is, isn't. That, that was my sense of that. I think that's exactly that, right. Uh, they don't know how to handle this. They don't want to say to their investors on their quarterly call, look, we've got a problem. But if everyone is forced to say it, it is kind of a relief <laughs> to explain this is our real situation. And it is forcing a change late in the day, but a real change in the oil majors. We're seeing it in BP and Shell and others, uh, even in ExxonMobil and Chevron, for heaven's sake, uh, that, uh, oh, it's real. <laughs> We've got to do something. We're writing down assets. Uh, we are moving to uh, invest in uh, alternative energy sources and so forth. So something is happening, and this disclosure is very important. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's a, a big step forward. I'm very proud of Mark Carney. He was a student at Harvard uh, when I taught at Harvard uh, uh, many years ago and was a fantastic student then and then a great uh, governor of the Bank of England and, and uh, uh, a great leader exactly in this financial disclosure. And Mike Bloomberg was my mayor, so it all uh, makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a record that you've got there. So I wanted to kind of return to this piece around uh, what it is that, uh, you know, different countries can play. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I say when people say, well, why should we do anything is, I, you know, New Zealand has the population of Los Angeles. My argument is, are you therefore saying that Los Angeles shouldn't do anything about reducing its emissions? And then if Los Angeles doesn't, then why should Chicago? In which case you're then asking, why should the United States, right? I mean, it's just, it's a sort of a, a, you know, kind of a, a parallel flow through. But I do sometimes wonder about the practical difference that a, uh, a smaller country can make in the global system, right? So um, you talked about the power of example, uh, and I have to say New Zealand's record is uneven uh, historically when it comes to climate change, if I was to put it politely. Um, and, uh, you know, we're obviously trying to shift that at the moment. Uh, but the question is, to what extent uh, do you think that actually has a practical flow through into what other countries are doing? One thing I would recommend, uh, and I find it important uh, politically and substantively, is the role that New Zealand can play in regional cooperation. Uh, I'm a huge fan 
uh, of uh, the regional comprehensive economic partnership, for example. Uh, I think that the 15-country trade agreement is extremely important. Uh, why? Uh, well, first, it's a great group of countries. Uh, you have China on, on the one side, huge, large, distrusted by some, uh, but it is together in this group with uh, the likes of Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and Korea. Uh, you have ASEAN, which is a very complicated region uh, and incredibly diverse, biodiverse, culturally diverse, uh, uh, even topographically diverse. And so it's a fantastic grouping that I think can be absolutely, or it already is, of course, about a quarter of the world economy, about a quarter of the world population, about a quarter of the world trade. It's a powerhouse region. And I would hope that New Zealand could play a role to make RCEP something quite substantial, not only on trade, but in this area of sustainable development and ecological management. There's literally the questions of how to interconnect the region in terms of energy technology and energy systems. Uh, I haven't looked exactly at New Zealand's options in that regard, but the fact that Australia might well run a submarine cable for solar from Western Australia up into Indonesia and into Southeast Asia is an example. Building a hydrogen part of the economy regionally is quite an interesting proposition. So when you are working on renewable energy, you definitely want to make uh, interconnections with neighbors. Uh, now, you know, given New Zealand's uh, geography, uh, it's a little trickier. Uh, islands uh, always have their distinctiveness. Uh, but I would say regional strategies on standards, on electrification of vehicles, uh, on developing the hydrogen economy to the extent uh, that it is economically smart on regional grids, uh, submarine cables uh, connecting uh, different parts of the region, all should be part of the agenda. And I like it also for the reasons we talked about earlier. Geopolitically, if the RCEP region works, what a gift for peace also and for prosperity because it's it is the most dynamic economic region in the world. Uh, it's the fastest growing region. Uh, it's uh, technologically cutting edge in the digital economy. Uh, and so I think it's a pretty exciting uh, part of uh, the global economy also. And New Zealand obviously can play a big role, even as a, a small uh, population, but a key country within the 15 I know that there's been a lot of criticism in the past about trade agreements pulling in a different direction from our environmental commitments uh, or, or, you know, re requirements, I guess. And I'm interested in exploring how those might come together uh, because, you know, I'm, instinctively I would agree with you. Uh, if you're going to solve the climate crisis, you've got to work out how to make trade agreements that facilitate that, right? The United, uh, um, New Zealand doesn't make any cars. Uh, we import everything and we tend to import second hands. Uh, if we're going to electrify our vehicle fleet, 
we're going to trade with someone uh, to do that. So at a very kind of simplistic level. But historically, uh, the evidence would suggest that trade agreements have tended to uh, rub up against um, the environmental outcomes that we want. I think that uh, there are a couple of issues. One is that uh, trade agreements have been viewed literally as trade agreements or as facilitation of foreign investment agreements, not as sustainable development agreements. Uh, and so sometimes the trade agreements and the bilateral and multilateral investment treaties have absolutely been inimical to what we're trying to do. Uh, all of this investor state dispute settlement mechanism, which is the arbitration process built into uh, most trade agreements and investment agreements, is actually anti-sustainable development because it gives these multinational companies absolute uh, excessive power to block regulations by host governments uh, that might hurt their book profits, even if it's good for society. So we designed a lot of the trade agreements uh, to uh, support companies to make money, not for the sake of our long-term sustainable development. Another aspect of the trade agreements is that uh, they've been viewed as a, a bit of a geopolitical game, which I really uh, rather resent and think is on the wrong track. The TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that uh, the U.S. was trying to negotiate seemed to me to be completely wrongheaded in this regard in that it was the purpose of it. Even the explicit purpose was we need to have a trade agreement that excludes China. Well, how can you have a trade agreement in Asia that excludes the number one country? Uh, it's a kind of fantasy uh, world. It ended up, uh, it, well, it exists in some form, but uh, the idea of the U.S., uh, honchoing it for the sake of uh, leading to contain China was such a strange idea and also a strange idea to enunciate, uh, no less. Uh, so uh, the cynicism was out in the open. Uh, that kind of agreement can't work. Uh, it, it also completely undermines the real uh, essence of cooperation on infrastructure and technology which neighbors share. So we're not even going to be able to decarbonize if we don't get along with our neighbors. And this is so important uh, to therefore not divide the world that China's on one side, but Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan, and Korea are on the other side. That would magnify the costs of decarbonization ferociously. Uh, it would also probably prevent the peace of mind actually to carry out these policies uh, in, in any event. But the first rule of good economics is get along with your neighbor. Uh, and this is not only in the Asia Pacific, it's everywhere. Uh, we need India and Pakistan actually to get along with each other, not to be one side with the US, the other side with China. This is nonsense. Uh, these are two giant countries. They're actually, in that example, they're nuclear armed countries, for heaven's sake. And they share a long border and they share river systems, uh, 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 climate risks, uh, renewable energy potential, and they don't talk to each other. 
Uh, and this can't work in this world. So I like to look around the neighborhoods of the world and say to the countries that don't get along with each other, Iran and Saudi Arabia, Pakistan uh, and, uh, and India, China, Japan, and Korea, and so forth. Get along, you know, get past the Cold War mentality where one side goes to one superpower, the other, the other superpower, because we'll never solve problems that way. Uh, you can only solve problems if, uh, you know, you're shaking hands with your next door neighbor and saying, why don't we uh, share uh, a, a power grid that can bring renewable energy between our two countries? So what would a, a trade agreement look like that actually accelerated and uh, reduced the cost of decarbonization? What, what we're going to need to do is put in the goals of decarbonization explicitly into our trade agreements to understand one key aspect, by the way, which is going to be the right and uh, demand of countries that are decarbonizing to be able to put on border adjustments against the imports from polluting industries abroad. Uh, Europe has already said that it's going to have uh, border carbon adjustments for the European Green Deal. Perfectly sensible. Uh, it should be part of uh, a common understanding at the World Trade Organization. But I think we really need to scrub the whole uh, trade system to clean up a lot of things uh, that are in there because they were stuck in there by companies that were lobbying governments to stick them in there, not because they were good for sustainable development. So I'd like to see the preamble of all our agreements say, this is in support of the Paris Climate Agreement. This is in support of the Sustainable Development Goals. And there are many areas where such implications uh, would uh, shine forth. Arbitrators on these uh, investor claims should be told explicitly, governments have absolutely the right to legislate and regulate for climate safety. And no claim should be made because of a new tax or a new regulation that limits business activities for the sake of decarbonization or for the sake of protecting biodiversity or other environmental objectives. But it's amazing how many arbitration claims are being made around the world right now by companies objecting to sound environmental policies by uh, the host governments on the theory that these multinational companies have the right to make profits through pollution. Nobody has the right to do that. And I think that we need to be very clear in our investment treaties and in the trade agreements that the environment is precedential uh, and it uh, is of first order importance and that it's actually an obligation of governments to regulate and to tax for the sake of environmental sustainability and no claims can arise from uh, such actions. That sounds like... Uh, something that might arise in conversations at the UNFCCC, um, at maybe at COP26 in Glasgow later this year or a subsequent events. 
but actually needs to be located at the WTO and and that and that set of negotiations. And I'm not sure about the level of coordination between those two global uh, agreements. Well, we now have a, a new head of the World Trade Organization, uh, Ngozi uh, Iwaela, who is a former uh, Minister of Finance of Nigeria. Uh, I know her very, very well, uh, and uh, she is uh, thoroughly on side uh, on these issues. She understands that the WTO needs to be trade for sustainable development, not trade for trade's sake. And so I think we have a real chance uh, also with the Biden administration now, instead of the Trump administration, we have a chance to do this. And given that we now have uh, China on board for decarbonization, uh, we have uh, Europe with the European Green Deal, uh, of course, uh, your commitments, uh, UK, the Biden administration, that's a lot of firepower at WTO to say we need to make sure the trade rules are compatible with our pathway to decarbonization. Can I, and we've only got a few minutes left, but I did want to ask you about the social cost of the transition. So when we talk about stranded asset risk or companies, you know, getting divested from if they're in oil and gas, uh, changing nature of trade agreements, companies' profits being at risk if governments regulate for environmental outcomes, uh, there will be plenty of people who all they see when we talk about that as a loss of jobs uh, and and the closure of communities, uh, reduction in livelihood standards. And I know that the phrase just transition gets used a lot to say this is what we need to do in order to get from point A to point B, but take everyone with us. But it doesn't seem well designed. You know, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of depth in what I hear about, okay, if you're going to do a just transition, what would that look like? Because we've been through other very significant economic transitions. New Zealand went through a, a crash course in economic transition in the 1980s that we're in some way still recovering from. Uh, you know, it, Sorry? Sorry. And you made it. And we made it, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, there are still some quite long-term consequences in terms of the growth and inequality over the last 30 years, uh, a real shift towards a much more stratified society, um, a, a, a kind of people in the lowest decile of incomes um, really struggling uh, on the edge. A lot, lot of other symptoms that you see in a lot of other, you know, uh, kind of anglophone countries, um, but a massive economic growth over the same period of time, right? So, as one of the things you know, people in my party often says, you know, GDP growth with growth growing inequality is poor quality growth, uh, and and I think that you could look at the next thirty years uh, and the scale of the economic transition that needs to happen, and be terrified by that if you look back on the experience that we've had over the last 30 years and the level of disruption and social stratification that has been the handmaiden to this liberalization of the economy and that significant GDP growth and technological change that we've had during that period of time. And yet we also know, like standing here today, we can't design a system perfectly that's going to be able to last for three decades. It's going to need to be able to adapt as we go. 
There, there are a number of issues with the just transition. One is very specific, which is uh, workers in oil, gas, and coal industries or oil, gas, and coal communities. They will face uh, the closure of what may be the main employer in a particular region. Uh, we face this in the United States, of course, uh, where uh, in West Virginia or in Wyoming or in uh, the oil uh, patch, uh, there are jobs at stake. But when you look at the actual numbers, one thing is very clear. The number of jobs involved, at least in the U.S. context, is very small compared to uh, the size of our uh, uh, labor force. We have a labor force of about 150 million people in the United States. We have of active coal miners in the U.S. fewer than 50,000 uh, in the uh, 150 million workers. So while there are communities that are hit, it just isn't anything like what uh, I would characterize as propaganda coming from the old dirty industries uh, has uh, promoted. Second major point is that there are a lot of jobs in the green economy. That is a tremendous amount of employment of building and installing uh, photovoltaics, uh, uh, new uh, transmission systems, electric vehicles, and all the infrastructure around that, uh, electrification of uh, buildings uh, for heating. Uh, we find many, many more jobs to be had compared to the few jobs in the very capital-intensive oil, gas, and coal sector that will be lost. Another point is that a lot of the workers in those declining sectors are in their 40s or 50s or 60s, and these don't get phased out immediately. They're phased out over time. And so there's a natural retirement. And it turns out on close analysis, the fiscal costs of really providing a fair cushion not just a fair cushion, a generous cushion, I would say, uh, and uh, regional attention uh, to uh, places uh, that are losing one industry and want to build another is completely affordable. Uh, since renewable energy is so affordable right now, there's no grand mass sacrifice that has to be made for the, the sake of climate safety. Uh, the transition is already bankable. Uh, we're already at grid parity or even better for many, many places in the world. One of the interesting developments in the United States taking place is in our industrial patch, uh, the industrial heartland, which is also politically our swing state region, uh, places uh, like Kentucky, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, uh, which is where a lot of the politics is contested at the federal level. A number of mayors have gotten together, Pittsburgh, uh, Morgantown, West Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and others, eight mayors. And they've said, look, we want the green economy. We've got universities that are good on technology. We can build electric vehicles. We can build photovoltaics. We can build wind turbines. We want the new stuff. We don't want to be stuck with fracking uh, and air pollution and coal and uh, cracker plants and so forth. We want the new stuff. So this is good politics uh, at the local level. And I think it is important for 
uh, President Biden, for example, to come up with a, a good regional industrial policy that says to the industrial heartland, green is going to be better for you. There are going to be a lot of jobs. Your universities are going to be deployed in high tech. Uh, we're going to be putting a lot of people to work in this process. But then you raise a, a larger question. And I think even without the energy transition, market economies do not deliver equality uh, with uh, any uh, regularity. They're not designed for that. They're designed for profits, not for equality. So we need government to lean against the markets to say, OK, we want markets, but we want fairness, too. We want everyone to be uh, brought along. And this is uh, the, the social democratic ethos, not, not uh, in uh, capital S, capital D of a particular political party, but an ethos which says the market economy should be within the context of institutions which guarantee everybody access to health care, access to job training, access to education, access to social protection, access to family support. And that we're going to need no matter what, because the technological changes ahead, even aside from the green changes, just the digital changes, artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, are going to disrupt the labor market so significantly that a lot of people are going to find they are going to need some help in this, even in a rising economy. And it may be the robots take so many jobs uh, that uh, the good news is that we could all uh, spend our afternoons uh, having our coffees because our robots are doing the work for us. But at the same time, we have to be very careful that we don't create a mass legion of unemployment and just Jeffrey Bezos at the top, uh, owning Amazon and worth $200 billion, uh, but the rest of the society impoverished because all the jobs have basically gone to e-everything. And so this is a general challenge, not only a, a green challenge. The challenge of building inclusive societies is a core part of the sustainable development agenda. It's inclusive and green, and those two have to go together. And that means a lot of innovative governance ahead. Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, this has been uh, an extraordinary session. Um, thank you so much for uh, your time uh, and for your insights. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where we get to with your ideas about the transition into the new economy over the coming decades. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. And again, congratulations and kudos to New Zealand for such wonderful accomplishments. Thank you very much for listening and thank you again to Professor Sachs for joining me. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.